Some of you will uh, know that the first question, well, I shouldn't say the first question, one of the first questions asked in the Bible was asked by the first son of the first couple in the Bible. So the couple was Adam and Eve, and their first son was their son named Cain. And Cain famously asked God a question. He asked it with a lot of sarcasm and with an attitude of obstinance. And it was this question, do you remember it? Am I my brother's keeper? Do you remember the question? Am I my brother's keeper? When God was quizzing Cain about the whereabouts and the well-being of his little brother, Abel, uh, Cain was completely unsympathetic. He lied to God about the fact that he didn't know, didn't uh, claim to be his brother's keeper, when in fact he had murdered his brother. But his attitude said to God, do I have to be responsible for him? Is it really up to me? Is his well-being or his benefit or his blessing, is that anything that I should be concerned about? Do I have to watch out for him? Maybe Cain would have worded it this way. Uh, Where's my brother? I don't really know. Why should I care? What difference does it make to me? Hey, do me a favor. Turn to your neighbor right now and tell them, don't be like Cain. Tell them, don't be like Cain. That's good advice. We don't want to be like Cain. Now listen, the question to the answer, am I my brother's keeper, We all know the answer. God answered it for Cain, and Paul answers it for us in our text today. Paul's answer to the question of, am I my brother's keeper? He would give a resounding yes. You are your brother's keeper. Absolutely. We are all to be our brother's keeper. We're going to talk about that today in Galatians chapter 5 and Galatians chapter 6. What does it look like? to be my brother's keeper. In fact, specifically, here's the question I want to answer for you today. It is how should Christian men and women treat one another? How should Christian men and women treat one another? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a good question because if we're honest all of us would have to admit that we don't always treat others like we should. It's true. You know, Tracy and I have been married for 37 years now, and I would love to tell you that every day for 37 years, I had always treated her the way that she should be treated, but I can't tell you that because I haven't. There have been far too many days, far too many situations where I haven't treated her well at all. I haven't treated her the way that she should be treated. I've been a dad for uh, over 30 years. We've raised four kids. I haven't always been the dad that I should be to to my kids. I haven't always treated them the way that I should. And I'm willing to bet that there are some of you who would say, you know what, I I haven't either. I haven't always been the spouse I should be. I haven't always treated my husband or my wife the way that I should. Or haven't always treated my kids the way that I should. The truth is, that's true of me, not just in my family, it's true of me and my friendships as well. I've had a lot of friends through the years and have a lot of great friends now. Sad fact is, I'm not always the best friend. I don't always treat my friends as I should. 
It's true of me as a pastor. I, I wish that I was a perfect pastor, but I'm not. And I, I don't always treat you the way that I should. And here's what I bet. I bet this is true of you. If you would admit it, I bet you would say in your friendships, in your career, your role in life, whatever it is that you do, you probably don't always treat people right either. Now the good news is, and there is good news, the good news is, is that we're not alone in this. And I don't only mean that we, we all fail in this, but we're not alone in our ability or our enablement to treat other people the right way. The good news is we have a helper. And the helper is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within us to enable us in our earthly relationships to treat others as we should. Let me take you back up to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, just to remind you of these verses. We read them last week. But these two verses detail nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. They are nine Christ-like descriptors that can be true in our lives. The Holy Spirit can produce within us, verse 22, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. These things can be produced in our lives because the Holy Spirit is present. And we read last week that if we will follow the instructive in verse 25, then this fruit will begin to show up. Look at chapter 5, verse 25. If we live in the Spirit, and that is if we have life in the Spirit, then let us also walk in the Spirit. If I will walk in the Spirit, if I will walk in the steps of the Spirit, walk in the uh, under the influence of the Spirit, uh, if my life will be conformed by the Spirit into the likeness of Jesus, then my life can demonstrate to others love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control, all of these things. Last week, I suggested to you some action steps that you could take, some practical things that you and I can do in order to walk in the spirit. Let me remind you of them. Number one, I said we should welcome the Holy Spirit every day to acknowledge his presence within us and to surrender in a fresh way to him. Number two, that we should set our minds on the spirit. That is that we should focus our attention on the things of the spirit that we find in the word of God. Number three, that we should crucify our human nature every day, that we would determine, we would reckon that we have died with Christ and our human nature is not to rule in us, but the Spirit of God is to reign in us instead. And then number four, that we should feed the Spirit and starve the flesh. These are the disciplines that we would focus on making sure that the things of the Spirit are finding a place in my life and the things of the flesh are being diminished or my human nature is being diminished. These four action steps. And here's a question for you. Did you do that this week? Did you, did you take some of these action steps? Did you surrender in fresh ways? Were you intentional about trying to walk in the spirit this week? I hope so. And if you did, if you were, then I, I promise you, you have discovered that things have begun to change. You found that your week was a bit different this week than other weeks because you were walking with the Spirit of God. And the truth is it changes everything. It does. It changes our attitude. It changes our responses. It changes our behaviors. 
and thereby it changes our relationships, changes our marriages, makes our marriages better, our relationships with our families better, our friendships better, our, our uh, workplaces uh, uh, better. It makes everything better. Now what Paul is going to teach us today is that the Holy Spirit is present within us that we might walk under his influence so that we will then treat others rightly. Let me read the text to you. I'm going to begin in chapter 5, verse 25, and we're going to go through chapter 6 and verse 5. <clears throat> chapter number 5, <clears throat> pardon me, and verse number 25. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. <clears throat> let us not be desirous of vain glory. We'll talk about that word in a minute. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another and envying one another. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself lest you also should be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let every man prove or test his own work. And then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Now, I want you to take your pen and you'll see three different times in these verses where Paul is interested in helping us in our one another relationships. I want you to circle in verse number 26 two times where the text says one another. Would you circle it both times? One another. Provoking one another and envying one another. And then if you go to chapter 6 and verse number 2, you'll find it again. He says, bear one another's burdens. Three times in just a few verses... He talks about what it looks like to do life together with other people. By the way, the one another's are found throughout the New Testament about four dozen times. You'll find multiple references to this idea of living in fellowship, living rightly with, in relationship with one another. Paul's obviously interested in how we treat one another. And he's interested that the Galatians would treat one another well and that they would understand that they're enabled to do it by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about how he do it, how he do it, how he does it. Would you write this down, please, somewhere in your notes? The Spirit makes me the right kind of person. This is really important. If I am going to treat other people rightly, it begins with the Holy Spirit doing a work in me. The Holy Spirit will make me the right kind of person. Now, if you have browsed the aisles of, of um, Barnes and Noble lately, or perhaps more uh, likely, if you have scrolled through the offerings of books on a digital service like Amazon lately, then you know that one of the most popular genres in, in, in book writing is the self-help category, right? If you go look at books, you will be inundated with books that are offering you steps and ideas and ways to be the right kind of person. 
I studied this a little bit this week. I did a little bit of research and I went to look at what are the current top titles or themes in, uh, in how we can become better people in the self-help uh, world. And so here are a couple of them. The leading title right now, if you're in business, maybe here's a suggestion for, for reading a book about your business. Um, this book is titled, it's the number one book in, in helping you build a better business, How to Leverage Your Emotions for business success. How to leverage your emotions for business success. I subtitled that book, How to Wine Your Way to the Top. Now, I don't know if that would be, a, I haven't read the book, so I don't know if that's an appropriate subtitle or not, but it sounds like it to me, right? Leveraging your emotions to, to build a, a, a good business. Here's another one. It's called Green Lights. Green Lights, Finding Greater Satisfaction in Life. And by the way, that book you, you might want to read because it was written by that infinitely wise uh, cultural philosopher and deep theologian, Matthew McConaughey. Uh, you know, so as you drive your Lincoln Continental, uh, you can find greater satisfaction in life. Those are the top titles. Now, there are classics as well, and a lot of us have probably read some of these classic self-help books, like, do you remember Dale Carnegie's how to Win Friends and Influence People. A lot of people read that book. Um, I've read Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. A lot of, a lot of folks have read that. Those are good. They're good books. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. Um, and, and then, by the way, there's another sort of sub-genre in the, in the self-help uh, category, which is Christian self-help books. Which, by the way, is kind of an oxymoron if you think about it, isn't it? I mean, a little bit. It's like, you know, I've discovered in Christ, I can't help myself. I need Christ to help me. But I want a Christian self-help book. Now, I'm not knocking it. I'm not being overly critical. But, but this is a genre of Christian, art, Christian authors writing self-help books for Christians. Now, the truth is, I say authors. There are more than one, but there's not a whole lot more than one. You just need to know that Joel Osteen has the market cornered in these books, okay? He's written all of them. Seriously, all of them. If you have an idea for a Christian self-help book, don't write it. Just send the idea to Joel. He'll write it. Because he has written so many of these self-help books. Your Best Life Now, Seven Steps to Living Your Full Potential is one. Empty out the negative, pour in the positive. You're stronger than you think is another title. The power of I am. It's not the power of the I am. It is the power of I am is a particular title. Think better, live better. On and on I could go. Now again, I'm not being overly critical of these things, but I'm saying to you there is obviously a deep need that we would become better people, different kind, a different kind of person. Because so many authors are writing about it. But here's really the simple truth. In order to be the right person or to be the kind of person I need to be, I really just need to learn to walk in the Spirit. You say, could it really be that simple? It, it really can be that simple. That it is the Holy Spirit of God that lives within us in order to shape our lives and to form us into the person that he wants us to be. And here's where that begins. When we walk in the Spirit and he is making us to be the right kind of person, 
then he begins that work by teaching me. Write this down. The Holy Spirit teaches me to see myself and others correctly. So a lot of the problems that we have in the way that we relate to other people is that we don't view ourselves correctly and therefore we cannot view other people correctly or our relationships with them and so everything goes haywire. Paul talks to us about the Holy Spirit and how that he teaches us to see ourselves and others correctly. Begin with me in chapter five and verse number 26 where he talks to us about how we should see ourselves. He says in verse number 26, let us, well, verse 25, walk in the spirit. And as we walk in the spirit, we will not then be desirous of vain glory. We will not desire vain glory. Now the word, the Greek word that's translated vain glory is a combination of two Greek words. The second word is doxos. And we get our word doxology from that word. So have you ever sung the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So we, we give glory, we sing doxos to God, or we sing glory to God in the doxology. He uses that word doxos. It's the second part of the word. But the first part of the word vainglory is the word kino or kino, and it means empty or vain, as the King James says. It means where there is no glory. If y'all are listening, I want you to say amen. Here's what he's teaching us, that the Holy Spirit helps us be the person we need to be, beginning in the first place by helping us understand that no glory resides here. And that if I'm thinking about myself correctly, I'm not going to be heaping glory on Jim Dykes where there is no glory to be had. That is exactly his point. Do not become conceited, the word means, or do not put glory where no glory belongs. Now, interestingly, he goes on in chapter 6 and verse number 3 to say when we do this, when we're not walking in the Spirit, or absent the Spirit's guidance and influence, and when we are seeking vain glory, or putting glory here in ourselves, he says in chapter six and verse number three, we are delusional. <laughs> it is delusional to think that we deserve glory. Look at verse number three. For if a man, if a person, thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he then deceives himself. He says, we forget that we truly deserve no glory. There is no glory within us. And we are walking in deception when we are walking with a view of ourselves, which is glorious. He says in verse number three, we imagine ourselves to be something when we are nothing. That's great deception, isn't it? I imagine myself to be something when in fact the verse says, I am nothing. Now, please don't misunderstand the word nothing. It does not equate to worthless. He's not saying we're worthless. We are, in fact, intrinsically valuable. We are of great worth to God and to others. So when he says that 
you're nothing. He doesn't mean that you're worthless. He means that in and of yourself, you would not exist. You could not exist. There is nothing to our lives absent the grace and the mercy and the power of God within us. That's what he means. He's saying you're like an infant. An infant has incredible, immeasurable value and worth and they are deeply loved but they are nothing in and of themselves they cannot survive they cannot get through life without mom and dad they would be nothing without a parent's love and care of them he says in the same way while we are valuable to God there is no glory that resides within us The lesson that he teaches us is that we are made by our creator, that we exist by his hand, our lives are held in his hands, that we are living every day sustained by his mercy. In him we live and move and have our being. We were nothing when he found us. If he left us today, we would be nothing tomorrow. Everything that we are or ever hope to be, everything that we have or ever will have, is all wrapped up in the grace of God in our lives and in nothing that we have done on our own. Do you understand? So if I walk around saying there's glory in me, I'm deceiving myself because the fact of the matter is without Jesus, I am nothing. This is what the Holy Spirit teaches us. And he teaches us this so that we will think rightly about ourselves. In fact, Paul says it another way in Romans 12 and verse number three. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with a sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned to him. So Paul says, look, if you want to treat others right, here's where it's going to begin It's not going to begin with the disciplines of learning how to relate to other people. It's going to begin with God revealing to you by his spirit who you really are so you see yourself correctly. Then you'll be able to relate to others correctly. In fact, look at how he says this in uh, chapter number 5 and verse number 26. Let's uh, be not desirous of vainglory because when we do walk with vainglory, when we're not walking in the spirit but we're walking in this fleshly way, he says we will... Either, verse 25, uh, or sorry, verse 26, we will either provoke one another or we will envy one another. We will provoke or we will envy. So the way that I view myself determines whether I am provoking others or envying others. One commentator said it this way, our conduct toward others is determined by our opinion of ourselves. Another one wrote, Christian relationships are governed not by rivalry or competition, but by service and love. So he says, if I'm not walking in the spirit and I don't have the right view of myself, then I will provoke others. The word provoke means to challenge, to prove your superiority. See, when I walk with vain glory, when I heap glory in my own life and I, I don't understand really that I'm nothing, then I enter into relationships and I have to prove that I'm superior in that relationship. 
So if I go into a, into a relationship with somebody in my family, with my spouse, with my kids, with a friend, with a church, uh, somebody in my church, and I feel like I'm better than you, for whatever reason, I feel like I'm better than you, then I'm gonna engage in that relationship in a way, smugly or arrogantly, that's going to demonstrate my superiority. I'm gonna be first. My opinion's gonna matter more. I'm gonna get what I want, whether you do or not. I'm gonna, it's gonna be my way. Those kinds of attitudes, because I believe that I'm superior to you when we're not walking in the spirit. The, uh, the other opposite extreme of that is that if we're not provoking one another, verse 26, then we will be envying one another. And it's the opposite. It means to feel inferior to, to wish that we were more on a level par with you, with one another. And so what he says is when we're relating to one another in these fleshly ways, out of vain glory, heaping glory on ourselves, trying to figure out where we fit in this relational equation, we're either trying to prove our superiority or climb up from our inferiority rather than simply walking into that relationship all equal in Christ, loving and serving one another. The Holy Spirit needs to teach me to view myself rightly so that I and you, that we can view one another rightly as well. Now, this is what the Judaizers were all about. The Judaizers were all about figuring out where people were in this equation and who was keeping the rules and who wasn't keeping the rules and who was doing the best job being Jewish and, and who was following the kosher laws most strictly. And they were watching every move of every person so they could compare themselves to one another. And this is the reason Paul goes on in verse number four to say, don't do that. Let every man put his own work to the test. Then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. He's simply saying that you and I should evaluate our lives and our walk with God purely on the basis of our walk with God, not compared to some other Christian. Am I doing better than them? I'm superior. Am I not doing as well as them? I'm inferior. No, he says, just walk with God. And you measure your own work. You put your own life to the test to, uh, based on how you walk with God and you then will find joy and rejoicing or you will find grief and need help based on your own walk with the Lord. He goes on in verse number five to say, in that way, here's what you can understand, that every man will bear his own burden. Now, wait a minute. He just said in verse number two that we're to bear one another's burdens. But in verse number five, he says that every man will bear his own burden. What's the difference? Well, in verse number five, what he's talking about is that on that day when we stand before God, the word bear your own burden means to carry your own pack. He's saying that when you stand before God, you're going to be carrying your own pack, right? And, and you, the life that you've lived, you will stand before God with that life and you will go to the judgment seat. And, and how you walked with God will be evaluated on that day, Christian friend. And guess what? Nobody's going to carry your pack. You're carrying your own pack. And on that day, you won't say, but what about this one? I did it better than they did. Or what about her? I did it not as good as she did. And he says, you will on that day bear your own burden. So this proper view, there's no glory in me. Everything that I have is in Christ. That proper view of myself then allows us to walk into Christian relationships 
and to relate to one another out of love and service, not competition or envy. If you understand, would you shout amen? Does that make sense to you? This Holy Spirit needs to teach me who I am. Let me see myself rightly so that we can see one another rightly. Now, when that happens, when the Holy Spirit teaches us that and we're able to see one another rightly, then we're able to serve one another. And there are a couple of ways that he mentions that we will serve one another in these relationships. Write the second one down. It is that the Holy Spirit leads us to rescue the fallen. The Holy Spirit leads us to rescue the fallen. You know, from time to time, and you know, some places, and sadly, maybe in your experience, it has been a sad but true commentary on the, on Christians that the Christian army is the only army that shoots its wounded. You ever heard that? The Christian army is the only army that shoots its wounded. Chapter 6, verse 1 tells us something that is absolutely true of every single one of us. It is that none of us are perfect. And that we all are going to mess up from time to time. We're all going to stumble and we're all going to fail. And he says to us in verse number 1 of chapter 6, Brothers, when a man is overtaken in a fall, it means to be overtaken by a sin. When that happens, and it's going to happen, it happens all the time. So here's the thing. We see a Christian brother, maybe somebody in our church, somebody in our small group, maybe a friend, somebody in our family. We see a Christian brother or sister and they, they fail in sin. There's a moral failure. Or, or, or we know a new Christian, a new believer, and they haven't been discipled yet. And there's still some old parts of their old former life that are hanging on. They haven't laid those things aside yet. They haven't learned yet. And we see them struggling with, with those sins, making immature mistakes in their walk with God. Or we see somebody who was set free from a horrible addiction and they've done well for some months or years and then they fall off the wagon and they slip back into that addictive behavior. It happens but too often, when it happens, Christians, rather than running to the sinning person to help, Christians run to other Christians to talk about the sinning person. Or Christians step back and watch the failure and fold their arms and say in their hearts, if not verbally, well, you know, I would never do that. I'm glad I'm above that. With a critical and a condemning spirit. Now you should understand that neither of those responses are from the spirit. Because if we are walking in the spirit, look at what verse number one says. It says that if we are walking in the spirit and we are not desiring vain glory, then when we see a brother overtaken in a fault, we will run to that brother we will run to that sister and we will seek to rescue them, to help them out of that sin that they're in. The only motivation that could motivate a Christian when they see another Christian sinning 
to run and tell somebody else or to stand back in their superiority, the only motivation would be that that sinning Christian makes me look like a better Christian. Because I would never do that and so obviously I'm better than them. No, Paul says, look, if you want to relate to other Christians right, know this, your Christian friends are going to fail sometimes. And when they do, here's what you do. Verse number one, he says in chapter number six, you go to them with a humble spirit. You restore them with a spirit of meekness, of mildness, of kindness, and in humility considering yourself, knowing I could do the same things. I could be tempted. I could fall. And so with that spirit of humility, I come to my brother or my sister and I seek to rescue them and help them. When he says, you with your spiritual restore, such a one, the word restore means to set in place. It's a medical term. It's the term for setting a broken bone in place. That we come to those sinning brothers or sisters and our desire is to set things right and to help them with that. When I do not view myself with deception, I know that I'm nothing without Christ. I have a spirit where I want to serve my brothers and sisters, then when one falls, I run to him to help him up. That's the command. Thirdly and finally, the Holy Spirit then also leads us to lift up one another. To lift up one another. To bear burdens. In fact, he says in verse number two, chapter six, verse number two, bear ye one another's burdens. Pick up the load that you see your brother carrying and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now the Judaizers were all about fulfilling the law, right? They, they were intent that, they would, that these converts of Paul would fulfill the law, but they had the wrong law in mind. They were talking about the law of Moses. Paul had a different law in mind. He said, bear you one another's burdens, and when you do it, you will be fulfilling a law, but you'll be fulfilling not the law of Moses, but the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is found in John chapter 13, verse number 34, where Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, and that new commandment is that you love one another just as I've loved you, that you love one another. So he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to let the Holy Spirit give you a new view of yourself. Don't think you're something when you're nothing. Don't walk around heaping glory in a, in a life where no glory belongs. But have sober and right view of yourself. I'm nothing without Jesus. I just get to be his servant. Everybody else is in the same condition. We now can come without competition, without envy, without superiority or inferiority. We just put our arms around each other, love each other, serve one another. And if you fall, we're going to pick you up. And when you got a burden, we're going to come alongside you and help because we're all servants of one another. So here's the question. Who do you know that's carrying a burden right now? Who's heavy laden that you could help carry their burden? I know you know some people. And, and maybe you're that person who's carrying a heavy burden. And part of walking in humility means that I'm willing to let other people bear my burden as well. Not only am I willing to help someone bear a load, but I'm willing to help let others help me. So who do you know that's carrying a burden? You know any new believers, new Christians? And they're just learning and they're hungry and they're stumbling along like a toddler just learning to walk and figuring it out. Come alongside of them and help them. You know any single moms working three jobs, raising four kids and trying to, trying to make ends meet and get through life? Don't stand back and just say, oh, poor thing. Come alongside and help. 
You know any widows or widowers that are grieving the loss of the person in the world they've loved the most? Help them. An elderly couple needs help around the house? It's simple. Help bear that burden. What about a, somebody caring for elderly parents? Boy, that's a, that can be a burden. We can come alongside and help. I, I'm just giving you suggestions. There are hundreds and hundreds of them. But he says, when you have the right view of yourself and the right view of others, and you approach one another with a heart of humility to love and serve, then burdens are not difficult to pick up. Now I'm going to close just by making one quick application point, which I did not plan. This text has been planned for this day for four months at least, probably five, okay? So, so I didn't plan this, but it's such a beautiful application that do you think that there are some middle schoolers and high schoolers who have the burden of a, of a secular culture on their lives, the burden of not knowing Jesus, and we can make such a difference in their lives? And we've got an an incredible ministry to students and all we need is the tool, the facility, the building to be able to to carry out that ministry to them. And Paul would say, bear that burden. Be willing to step up and help bear that burden for those students so that they can know Christ and grow in their relationship with him. Such a fitting application of this. But I will do it when I realize that Christ has made me who I am and in him I am a servant of other people.